This podcast may contain f***ing swears that from this point on will not be f***ing bleeped. Uh, so Simon, this is episode 10. Yes, this is episode 10. We've come to the 10th episode, which we're going to say concludes series one. Yeah, let's say that. Let's say that. 10 episodes for a couple of twats like us. That feels like something of an achievement. Certainly in this year it does, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, what a ridiculous year. Really, really in fact, is there's a nice kind of circularity because we started uh, in April under a tree two metres apart because that's what we were allowed. Yeah. And we're finishing in November walking across a field two metres apart because that's what is currently allowed. Yeah, exactly. It's it was ridiculous. a brief anyway, sort of few days in the sun in the middle when we were allowed to be yeah, indoors. That's true. We but even now, once went into a pub. Yeah, classic times. Um, but yeah, ten episodes. It's it's been uh, it's been great. Thanks for listening. If you, st- if you still are, if there's anyone out there, thanks for listening. We still haven't done the thing where you look at your numbers, have we? This is largely because I am a coward. Oh, well, I'm a massive coward. I'm a massive Noel coward. Yeah, but I reckon, I, th- I get the feeling that you would go, yeah, okay, let's look. And I'm more like, no, what's the point? Really? I just said it was the other way around. Oh, okay, well, that's interesting. Uh, I just feel like if we find out no one's listening, it'll be, oh, what's, uh, the, what's the point? Yeah. And if we find out shitloads of people are listening, like, oh, pressure. Like, oh, Christ, no, that'll change it. Mm. So I figure, why find out? So I mean, I'm, I know my mum's listening. <laughs> I know my mum started. <laughs> your mum's not listening anymore. Well, no, it's, I think it's just a, you know, she's just baffled by tech. So, mm. oh, mum, I didn't mean that. And when you get to this bit, you can tell me off. And I'll know if you've got to it because yeah. you'll definitely tell me off. Exactly, that. it's a test. Yeah. Very clever. You pass, mum. Anyway, well. ten, 10 is a thing. 10 is double figures. If this was an innings, if, this was, if, you, were, if you were batting, yeah. you'd think, oh, I'm in. I'm in here. Oh, would you? Are you in at 10? I don't know, wouldn't you? I mean, I've, you know, I've never, to be honest, I've never really got much above 10. So to, for, for me, that would be like a top score. I'm not sure I've ever really been in. <laughs> anyway, we've drifted off point fairly quickly. Yeah, easily done. Hello, and welcome to Something Out of Nothing, a podcast exploring the nature of creativity. Attempting to discover what, if anything, creatives in different fields have in common. To do this, two friends with inquiring minds and a propensity to wang on at each other about creative stuff decided the best way would be to talk to other creatives and see if we can tease their secrets from them. He's Simon White, a writer and advertising type. And he is Neil Smith, an illustrator and graphic designer. Uh, What are we talking about? My stupid wellies. Uh, Yeah, they are pretty stupid, aren't they? Neil's got some, like, half wellies. They're a kind of... They remind me a bit of... They're the kind of thing Tom Bombadil might have worn. Who the fuck is that? OK, let's scratch that. Uh, there's no point in that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> they're a really sort of loud, bright green... Uh, I don't know. They're the wellies of a person who doesn't generally go for <laughs> walks in the country. I've saying. got to tell you, these, these are sort of cut-off wellies. They're bright green. They make me look like a children's TV presenter. They're a little bit yes. CBBs, a little bit Mr. Tumble. They very much are. Uh, and I bought them having had half a bottle of wine on a Saturday night. Uh, and they were, they were in the sale at Hunter. Uh, right. And I guess there's a reason they were in the sale. Maybe the colour. Maybe the colour. Maybe the fact that they're only half wellies. No, I like the half wellies. Do you? Yeah. Although, 
thought the whole point of a welly was to protect one against exactly the kind of business that's going on at the bottom of your jeans. Well, this is, yeah, okay. Well, I mean, I was, gonna, I was about to say, I mean, who needs the top half of a welly? Not me. But then I glanced down and actually my favourite jeans are covered in splatters. Mm. So I need the top half of a welly. I'd say you do, Neil. These are clearly not fit for purpose. Well, it depends what the purpose is, really. If it's walks in the country, I'd say they're not. I've got to say, my intention was, was kind of... Uh, my intention was to attend a couple of music festivals this summer. Uh, oh. So I kind of vaguely had that in mind. See, now that makes these. a lot more sense. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, obviously music festivals... They're definitely... Very much not happening. They're definitely OK for the queue for the toilets, aren't they? Oh, yeah. yeah Designed for the queue at the toilets. Yeah, pretty much. That's what Hunter had in mind. Yeah, exactly. What the world needs now is another podcast from a couple of middle-aged fools. That's exactly right. So our guest today is Ridian Brook, um, the writer and broadcaster. Uh, Ridian kindly invited us up to his... Uh, up to his lovely house in southwest London. Mm. Um, and, so I know Red from way back in the day, a little bit like Phil from some episodes back. Yeah. Uh, we worked together on advertising. Was Ridian, did he work with Phil too? Was that a different place? Uh, well, Red was freelance then, so yes, I'd say he did, yeah. Ah. Yeah, I think we were, there was a time when we were at Marvel Arch, I'm sure I remember Red being there and Phil definitely was. Yeah. So yes. Should probably have thought about that, shouldn't I? No, it's all right. Um, but uh, so Ridian's, Ridian's book um, was picked up by Ridley Scott's production company and turned into a uh, Hollywood blockbuster film starring Keira Knightley. Is it Scott Free? Say what? Is it Scott Free production? I didn't realise that yeah. either. Yeah, it is. It's dreadful, aren't I? I really need to do some research. Oh, well, it's kind of, uh, you're kind of, um, you're not really that guy. You're, you're more of a style it out kind of a guy. So. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Although I didn't then, did I? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. All right. Not so much. <laughs> okay, Scott Free, yes, good. Um, yeah. But yes, it is quite a big, so it's, um, should we say lavish? Really lavish. Mm. Really lavish. I haven't, I'll confess I haven't read the book, but I did watch the film. And I think the film got... Um, you now have a signed copy of the book. I do. Very proud of it. Um, you better damn well read it. Yeah, saying. damn straight. Damn straight, boy. Um, but uh, I loved the film actually. But um, it was only when I sort of, when we were chatting to Ridian, that I sort of he, he, he said that he you know, wasn't crazy about the way the film had been adapted. No, from, it's very interesting. What, yeah. what, one of the really interesting elements of what we talk about is that uh, you know the having your work adapted. I think it's fascinating. You know that that as a uh, presumably. Uh, as, a, as a novelist, as a writer, you're so in your own head, um, and we sort of allude to it. You are the, you're the writer, you're the director. You know, you are, you know, uh, do the catering. Uh, yeah, do the catering. Everything <laughs> comes from you, and then to get to then give that away uh, is kind of um, well, it's quite a big ask. I it's think. a weird one, isn't it? Especially if you've been involved. I mean, I think it's slightly different if you just say, "Yeah, go on, you get, you crack on." But if you're involved in the early stages of it. And then they change it into something that is not quite what you thought. And especially with it being, a, you know, such a personal family story. Um, yeah. You know, that is, that's pretty tough, but it's part of the gig. And I think Ridian is really... Uh, He's very philosophical about yeah, it, isn't he? he is philosophical yeah. about it. And also, it's a pretty good gig, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's not first, name terms, first name terms with Keira Knightley. Yes, please. Yeah, that'll do. That'll do. Uh, okay, I won't take that road sweeping job after all. 
because <laughs> something else has come up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hang on, mate. We've just come across a giant puddle. Yeah, this is pretty giant. Uh, well, well, I've got my um, I've got my silly green wellies on, so I might splosh through it. Hang on. Ooh. Oh, shit. Yeah, I loved our trip up to Southwest London, partly because that's where I, I was at university around there, so it was very familiar. Formative years. Yeah, formative years, exactly. Man and boy. Uh, but um, yeah, Ridding kindness invited to his house, which is lovely, I must say. It is, and so this was pre-COVID. Uh, it was, this is a long time ago. I'm gonna have to call Rid and apologize for the length of time it's taken us, even in the context of this ridiculous year where nothing goes to plan. This has gone spectacularly not to plan. But so this was one of our earliest podcast recordings. Um, and I think uh, we were very much freeforming it, weren't we? Which made, yes. which made it a really difficult edit. It did. It was a monster of an edit. It was like over four hours of conversation because he's a lovely guy, Red. And so we'd sat around in his house for like, you know, the best part of a day. So there was, it, it required an awful lot of waffle waiting. Yeah. Half, half wellies. Would not cut it. <laughs> no way. You had your full. You had to go over over your waist length. Yeah, like weight, like I oh, fly fishing gear. Yeah, waffle waders. Get yeah. your waffle waders like on. The ones with braces. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Those even type. then, the, the the kind of the waffle is is is, is approaching your neck. Yeah, Did you, you feel are, like were you up to your neck in waffle? Neck deep in waffle. Yeah. So there's a lot of cutting, and because of that, I kept going away from the edit and coming back to it. And we've ended up actually with two. It's split into two. And they're roughly divided, I say roughly, and I mean roughly, uh, into stuff about uh, the process of being a professional writer and um, like novel writing and screenwriting and broadcasting. Uh, Bridge writes thought for the day, come to that in a sec. Uh, and the second half of it is uh, more about sort of philosophy, religion. He's a, he's a sort of very vocal Christian, Red. And he does thought of the day, as I say, which is, uh, if you don't know, is a thing on Radio 4 most mornings on the Today programme. He's been doing that for years and years. And a book that he's got out uh, recently, actually, when we spoke to him, it wasn't yet out. Now, it's like six months old. Yeah, that's right. Paul Ross. It's, got, and it's called, called God-Bothering. Yeah, which is such a great title. It's a wicked title, wasn't it? I think one of the things I love about Ridian, because I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm an atheist. Mm -hmm. uh, but I love how self-aware Ridian is and how he's, uh, he's a sort of, he's uh, aware that it's not for everyone. Yeah. Uh, and he, he doesn't mind, he doesn't mind chatting about it. And I think there's lots of... No, well, there's... we became friends really back in the day when he was fairly newly into it. Uh, we would go and drink lots of beer and talk about it. And it was never antagonistic, even though we hold pretty much opposite views um, but well, not opposite views, but he believes and I don't basically, but it's uh, around it, there's always so much interesting stuff to talk about. Yeah, definitely. I sort of increasingly of the view that, I don't know, some of the greatest, some of the greatest intellectual minds, you know, in, in, in history mm -hmm. have uh, debated and, you know, and, and, and believed in uh, high being and all of that. Yeah, uh, there's also... You know, what, the, what the fuck do I know? I literally don't know anything. Yes, I'd go more agnostic than atheist, just on yeah. that basis. On the basis that it basically means I don't really know. Yeah. Which is my answer to most things, to be honest. Yeah. What do you think about that? I don't really know. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> oh. but, I know um, that's not true, Simon, you see. I know that's not true. I think it's a... It's refreshing because it's 
so unlike modern society to have an open mind and to be able to have a free-ranging discussion on a subject about which you disagree. It's so unusual today. Yeah. And that's quite refreshing, I think, generally. Yeah, absolutely. Very much uh, in a time of polarised opinions. Aren't we just? Whether it be... Whether it's your Brexits, your Covids, <laughs> <laughs> your pandemics, your, <laughs> your vaccines, your vaccines, yeah. Is it a vaccine, Simon? Or are the government inserting a microchip into our brains? You know. Yeah. So the biggest defence to that argument, I think, is this government. Yeah. You, you seriously think they're that organised? <laughs> uh, maybe it's all a cover. Maybe it's all a cover. Maybe this blundering, you know, fuckwittery yeah. is all just a cover for. I mean, when he pulls you know, off the human mask, that's the, right. The to lizard reveal inside. The, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not saying our government are lizards, but mm-hmm. you know, mm. maybe maybe David Icke was onto something. I think we possibly strayed from the point a little <laughs> bit now. So anyway, what I was saying was first half writing process of being a professional writer, what that entails, and the sort of thought processes that accompany it, and the second section part two is much more about this kind of philosophy religion and general musings um which you may well enjoy if you're into that kind of thing or if you enjoyed the first one because he's a really good talker isn't he he's a great talker a bit like uh, ali bruce ball uh, as a sort of professional broadcaster just got a terrific he's just voice. got a really lovely voice yeah just keep talking <laughs> um, but oh, Ridian is so sort of bright I, I sort of had that slight sense uh, as i did when we were um when we were chatting to Simon Evans, you're Simon say. Evans. So I had that sense that I did when being, we were chatting slightly to outclassed. Uh, yeah, but being, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Not, I never felt particularly outclassed, Simon. But uh, <laughs> so, certainly knew that I was talking to somebody who had a much bigger brain than me. Yeah. Uh, but that didn't stop. Uh, yeah, uh, which is exactly what we want. In that he is, he is a creative. He's a professional creative. He's been doing it for a long time, and he's really thoughtful about it. Really thoughtful, and there's loads of really amazing uh, process stuff uh, in our in, in both of the in both the sections actually. How you go from you know the processes involved in writing a novel to the processes involved in adapting for a screenplay to the processes involved in writing something like Book for a Day. Yeah, ninety second speech on the issues of the day involving. Higher power in some uh, Yes, exactly. Um, so this is our chat. It start, opens up with a rather tangential chat about Billie Eilish, Radiohead and James Bond. Yeah, yeah. You, and yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I vividly remember that sandwich by the pond in Barnes as well. Oh, wistful. So back in the days when oh, you could yes, pre- queue up in a slightly too hot bakery. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, with a crush of other people. Yeah, that's right. Wishing they'd get out of the way. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, that's probably enough waffle for this one because it is long and there are two of them. So anyway, here's our, the first part of episode 10 with Ridian Brook. Neil and Simon, Neil and Simon, what a pair of twats. Riding on the coattails of people who have talent. They are not afraid to look like a desperate double act. Neil and Simon, Neil and Simon, what a pair of twats. So we were chatting in the we were chatting by the pond in Barnes mm. uh, over a over a sandwich. We were we were 
breezing on about Bond for some reason. I think it was something to do with my Pilates class yesterday when the topic well, came up. it's because the um, theme tune's out yeah, today. We, oh, that was it. We were talking about the yeah. theme tune. Billie Eilish. We were yeah. talking about the Billie Eilish theme tune. And then uh, you like the radio. And I was saying, yeah, my favourite Bond uh, theme was the Radiohead one that never got really used. Is. And Simon straight away said... Well, that was just, that's clearly a commercial decision. A commercial decision. So but my daughter is about to be 18, she's 17, and she loves Billie Eilish. She's right in her heartland of sort of angsty singer-songwriters. Yeah. Billie Eilish is actually quite good. Oh, I think she's wonderful. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm a fan. Yeah. But the... Um, I'm agnostic. The, what, is, what is slightly cynical is that she and most of her peers, I've never seen a Bond film, not interested, mm. but I think there's a very good chance that she'll go and see this one mm. because Billie Eilish is involved. Mm. And that is... That is the heart of that decision, isn't it? That, that sort of marketing idea around films is yeah. that what we want is the yeah. 16 to 24 year old, they're working as a waitress or in a pub or whatever. Mm. How do we get them to spend that small amount of disposable income they've got on 15 quid on a ticket to come see the Bond film? And it's not going to be Radiohead. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> but but my, my thing on the Radiohead thing was like, why didn't they choose it? Because it's great. It's I, clearly but, better. But it's but it's clearly better than the Sam Smith one. Yeah. But the Sam Smith one gets bums on seats yeah. or gets a different demographic of bums on seats. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it, it just made me think, I wonder if you have had those kind of conversations, those kind of clearly very commercial conversations mm. around the Aftermath book. When you were doing when you were adapting it for the screen, mm. you must have had loads of conversations mm. where they're well or whether whether actually as uh, as the creative or the artist or the uh, the writer on it, you're kind of removed from those kind of decisions. Well, I, there's a big difference between the novels and the scripts. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, I write, I'm, I guess, what you might call literary fiction in terms of novels. So that generally means I'm writing what I want to write. Yeah. Um, and I guess the aftermath was probably the most sort of commercial book I've written. Mm-hmm. as an idea because it was genre um arguably romantic history uh, yeah almost so they marketed it in a particular way with a cover that was genre so with scripts um you know it's a, it's a collaborative form so mm. you're already involved in sort of dissipating sharing ideas and the money involved is much greater yeah so there's much more anxiety around finance, and is, especially is, in film. Is there also a, because there's more money involved, is there also a kind of, well, they're paying me a lot of money, I should do what they want? Is there that element? Or is there more of a kind of, no, I've got to stick to my guns and get this as I want? I, I'm not really a hired gun kind of writer. No. I mean, I did write a screenplay for The Aftermath before I wrote the book, unusually. Yes. Because it got commissioned by Ridley Scott's company. Yeah. So that, that's Almost how, by mistake. How actually. I came to it is, of course, all those years ago, you sent me a draft of it yeah and we uh, disappointingly our conversation about that is lost yeah because there's an email string of us chatting about it and then say let's have a phone call yeah (laughs) yeah. i can't remember what the conversation went but so the idea for the for the aftermath i mean was a family story and i when my dad told me the story i thought i've got to write this down and it was probably about 2001 i'd written two novels i was just trying to get into script writing and get out of advertising so my, you know, I needed a bread and butter. Yeah, quite hard to earn a living as a novelist. I'd had a couple of kids. You know, it was, it was my wife's a teacher. It was tight. So I had to, you know, find a way uh, of earning a living. Um, and I thought, well, I'll try the script writing. So I wrote an outline of the aftermath as what it 
as though it were for potentially a novel, but could easily have been for a film. Yeah. And back then I conceived it as a kind of big David Lean kind of scale sort of story. Oh, it is so David Lean-y, potentially, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And um, stuck it in a drawer and, you know, went on and I worked for Sun, you know, for the BBC, I wrote Sun and Witness for a mm. couple of seasons and then... How did you get that, how did you get that gig, uh, you know, for somebody who's looking to get out of advertising and into yeah. screenwriting? I mean, you don't just presumably didn't just stroll into the BBC and no I I well what I realized quickly is you have to have some sort of proof that you can write a script uh, yeah. whether it's commissioned or not so I had to write a script so I wrote a speculative script which was like a calling card that got me into the meeting oh, great. and then a friend of mine commit who was in film um, commissioned me to write something that didn't happen but as a consequence of that I went to another meeting uh, with the BBC and learned that they were looking for Easter themed sort of play for today's uh, for BBC. BBC oh yeah, one. was that the Tim Small one? Mr. Harvey lights a candle. That's it, yeah. yeah, and I'd been doing thought for the day for about three or four years, so obviously there was a faith, you know, element to uh, what I was bringing to the to the to the table. Yeah, and they said, "Why don't you come up with some ideas?" So I came up with this story of a school trip that goes to Salisbury Cathedral and goes wrong. And um, they really liked it. They commissioned a script. And Hilary Salmon, who's the executive producer, said, who do you think should play Mr. Harvey? And I said, well, I really think Timothy Spall would be great. She said, well, why don't we send it to him? So she sent, they sent it to him. And it was quite quick. It was like three or four weeks. He got back and said, I'd like to play this. Wow. And actually then... I'd forgotten it was Salisbury. Yeah. So it got made. Yeah. And... It was actually, I remember when it got made, the time from me delivering a four-page outline to principal photography, first day of shoot, shooting, was it was 12 months. And I remember Hillary saying to me, That's pretty quick. Don't, don't think this happens like this every time. <laughs> this is rookie's luck, you know. Yeah, right. Um, so that's how I got into yeah. it. And as a consequence of that, if you've got a credit, they ask you to do other things. Yeah, and yeah, it, yeah. Back then, it's changing now. But... Um, they said, you know, have you ever, do you want to write for Silent Witness? Because um, we like to use different writers. And, and I'd never seen Silent Witness at this point. Right. And so I watched a few and I went to pitch some ideas to them. And I was terribly naive, but actually in my naivety was a strength because I said, this show is all about dead bodies and no one's asking the question, what what next? You know, let's, right. let's have a question that explores the existential element side of things. And Steve uh, Matthews, who was the um, script editor on it, who's now a good friend, I call him Silent Steve. <laughs> if my phone rings and it says silent, it's Steve Matthews. Uh, he was a brilliant script editor. And uh, so I did two seasons of that, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, um, and great for your craft as well, I'd have thought. Very good for your craft and good for your bank balance. It's the most successful BBC crime show ever. Is it? Because it sells in something like, right. I don't know how many countries. So... I get royalties. The only thing I still get royalties from is Silent, Silent Witness, which I wrote. friendly unit shifter. <laughs> 15, yeah. Mass market filth. <laughs> uh, uh, Excellent. Um, so they actually filmed one of them, South Warple Way, just here. There's a How scene where they? they kill a pizza delivery boy. Fantastic. And they had to kill him in the South Warple Way and they shut the whole road down, much to everyone's chagrin. <laughs> and I'm, I really upset my neighbours. So... I, I was I, I was able to give up the day job, as it were, and make that my day job. 
so you just said there that you know you pitched some ideas mm. um do you always feel like you've been somebody for whom ideas come quite readily yeah i actually without being immodest that's that's not my you know that that's the easy bit for me is actually or sometimes it's having too many ideas and it's which of the ideas do you feel um is appropriate strongly about actually okay as well well that's the trade-off there's what's appropriate and there's what you feel mm. you want to write and mm. if the two things can meet that's great and I have had that quite a lot actually in my writing career there are very few things I've written where I've just you know been doing it for the money I mean I guess Silent Witness is not something I would want to write forever yeah but it was fun at the time it was really fun at the time and I learned a lot and it got me out of jail you know um, and it's once you're doing it, you're doing it, aren't you? Then you can move on to other things. Yes. You are. And having ideas is really important in all the things that I do, you know, script writing, um, you know, novels, even thoughts. Thoughts, thoughts yeah. You Thought know. for the day. I mean, that's just chock full of ideas, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and that's a different kind of skill in terms of how you make an idea, yeah. how you communicate an idea very quickly um, and hopefully one clear you know, idea. Um, to go back to your, sorry to interrupt, yeah. to go back to your, um, I love the idea of where ideas come from. Yeah. And it's one of those great in sort of intangible things, isn't it? You, asking somebody where their ideas come from is like, mm. um, but um, I've always found like ideas come very quickly to me, but I need to be given a brief first. So in my illustration work, if I'm given a nice tight brief, it's got to be this, got to be that. And I love the little, your first paragraph in your introduction to God Bothering, uh, just how tight that brief is. Yeah. Uh, but within a really tight brief, yeah. my imagination goes into overdrive and ideas come really quickly. Yeah. Do you feel like, do you need a brief for those ideas to come quickly? Or do you find yourself just having ideas for, oh, that would make an interesting, this idea I'm thinking about would make a really interesting book. Mm. This idea would make a really interesting musical or, or do you need to be, mm. does it go back to your advertising days where presumably you were given briefs? Well, advertising is a kind of good sort of ground, you know, it's a good learning school. It's a good school for, for all this stuff in the sense that you're constantly dealing with ideas and quite quick turnover and you have to develop a thick skin in terms of Absolutely. rejection yeah. and not, you know, holding things quite lightly. And the ideas, you know, the rule in advertising was in a brainstorm, everything goes. There's no such thing as a bad idea. And that's a good principle in that because a lot of this stuff is, at times, it's actually just about getting it out. There's no woo-woo mystery to where ideas come from, I think. But um, having a brief is really helpful. Um, obviously, in advertising, it's essential. Um, sometimes, you know, I've written a couple of films. I wrote a film called Africa United. Um, and that actually that came with a very, very simple premise, which was, which I changed slightly, which would basically involve five young people walking to the opening ceremony of the World Cup in South Africa from Rwanda. Now, in the brief, it was actually about the football team that failed to qualify who make this journey. Then we decided to make it kids, but it was a very simple kind of premise and quite sort of, although obviously what you do with that is up to you. But um, even sometimes if it's a really good premise or brief, if you like, mm -hmm. um, you can go a long way with that. And I do, you know, with novels, there's something a bit more organic about a novel. Um, and you don't want to be overly 
um, prescriptive because you might lose the serendipity of what you discover along the way with the story you know what if you're unless you're writing a thriller in a by numbers thriller can I come back to your I, I love what you said about um, there's no woo woo yeah. as to where ideas come from yeah and this idea of uh, so I, I haven't worked in advertising like you guys yeah um, but I have seen mad men I think that <laughs> qualifies me yeah, sure. Yeah. It's the same, but I love I, just like that. But, yeah. but I think Simon I, and I were just as stylish. Yeah, yeah, I know, as I that. Know. Only there was slightly less whiskey involved. Yeah, yes, yeah. slightly less in um, the series. Yeah, but um, one of the things I love is this. I, you know, I love that advertising thing about no such thing as a bad idea. Um, a just, lot. just, just let it all, just kind of let it all come out. Um, and in that sense, what you're saying is that everybody has good ideas. It's just how prepared you are to let them spill out of your brain in front of other people. Well, I would slightly qualify that. There is such a thing as a bad idea, but the, the yes. rule is in the process of finding the good idea, you've got to let all the ideas out exactly. and give them equal space. Consideration, yeah. And then it's about discernment and trying to work out the what The thought works. is there in order to, to um, disinhibit people, isn't it? Yeah. So you keep talking because yeah. something good's going to come out eventually. Even that stuff we're going to have to... We're going to have to ditch all that, but let's not talk about that stuff. Because writing is, you know, as as Hemingway said, writing is rewriting. And actually what that really is, is it's, it's, there's so much editing. A, a good writer has to be a good editor, really. Um, and that's editing word for word, sentence for sentence, you know, paragraph for paragraph, making choices along the way not to do certain things, to turn left instead of turn right. And, yeah. Um, now, obviously, you know, in a novel, that's a, slightly different situation if you're 75,000 words into a book um, and you feel you should have turned left and you turned right um, <laughs> it's much harder to undo that but at the same time in a novel there's a sort of baggy air so I'm saying about having you know different slightly different attitude to certain forms um, I mean it would be good if all novelists were made at least once to write a screenplay because a screenplay teaches you some really interesting things about structure, story structure. People think screenplays are about dialogue. You know, it looks like it's all dialogue. The dialogue is the least important element of a script. Um, and so what you get is you you realise that stories are, Aristotle was right, they are basically three acts <laughs> and there is a beginning and a middle and an end. You can put them in different orders if you like, but there's still going to be a beginning and a middle <laughs> yeah, and an end. Yeah, so there's a formula. Yeah, there is a formula and the formula is quite sort of primal. And um, so, you know, and, and I think, I think, you know, a good writer will have an innate sense of structure um, and probably won't worry about the structure as, as they're going. So can I ask you a bit about process then for you? Mm. That structure, so you've, like you, you said, if you're 75,000 words into a novel, mm. do you do it beginning to end? Does it work that way? Or do you, you have an idea for a scene that you might, Get that down and then mm. oh, I'm going to have to put something on the front of it. Or I'm a bit linear with the way I've written my books. Oh, yeah. I, I have gone uh, from, from, from the beginning to the end, more or less. Occasionally you might realise there's this thing that happens in the book and you might feel I need to write that now, that scene, and you might write it down um, in a rudimentary form or it might it indeed be, you know. It, there's something really interesting about writing novels which I forget until I do it, because I don't do it all the time, of course. But when you do it, 
you realize, and this is back to the woo-woo thing, mm. is that you kind of kill the mystery of the woo-woo just by doing it. Yes. Um, you know, 90% of genius is turning up, isn't it? The, yeah, right. the Allen quote. you got to, uh, and, applying the arse to the chair. Yes. And if I, you know, whenever I do talk about writing, and I've done a bit of this with students recently in the last couple of years, that I, my number one thing I'm trying to do is demystify it. Because I think, I think there is, there are some mysteries about writing, which we can come on to, um, uh, which I don't fully understand. Um, but, Trying to demystify the process is actually quite help, helpful to people because people feel very stymied. I've got um, a kind of a theory that it's a little bit like advertising in that there's two aspects to it. There's the the first, like in advertising, you, you generally tend to work in pairs, don't you? There's, you sit around with a, a words guy, will sit around with a pictures guy and you, you mm. brainstorm a load of stuff and you come up with a bunch of ideas and then you try and sell those ideas in and then when one gets bought, you make it. Mm. And they're two very, very distinct and separate parts of the process. Mm. And I feel that it's the same thing in writing, is that you've got, there's the ideas bit, and and there's the actually one word in front of another making sentences bit. And some people are great at the ideas and not very good at the the actual, the prose, the stuff that you read and you go, oh, that's lovely. That is that is so beautifully encaptured that. Yeah. And other people the other way around, you've got brilliant prose, but the ideas that you get to the end of it and you go, what's that about? And there's the, the, mm. they, they feel like they're separate disciplines. Do you, do you feel like that or do they come together for you? I, I think they have to come together. I mean, you might be better at one than the other. I think the ideas bit is easier. I personally do as well, yeah. Um, how you convey those ideas and, in, and how you say it, that's a whole different issue. Mm. I mean, it partly comes back to your question earlier about commercial decisions. Um, and what are you prepared to do in order to get something made or yeah. something published? Uh, do you do you compromise a vision, or is the vision false anyway? Okay. You know how how's the story going to be told uh, in the best way possible? And you know, I think sometimes the commercial expedient is a good thing because it's about applying the discipline uh, of of having a format. You know, here's I mean, I'm adapting something at the moment potentially, um, which is about Conan Doyle. And it's already quite a commercial prospect because it's got the name Conan Doyle yeah, attached yeah. to it. Who doesn't know who that is? And, um, well, interestingly, that's kind of it. It's, I didn't really know who he was. How did you not? Well, well, I sort of did, but I didn't know this particular story, which is, you know, gives it something. Um, and there's much in the execution of this will, that will be done for me in terms of the facts yeah. of, the, of the story. But then there's the other stuff, which, how do I bring that to life? How do I own it for myself? Mm. You know, I can't just regurgitate someone else's presumably you've version got, of events. You've got to imbue it with a personality, which yeah. is, the facts don't give you. You don't. I mean, even with, say, Silent Witness, which is a very strong Bible, you know, what's called a series Bible, yeah. you know, you get there, it's very fixed format. Back then there were three characters. This is how they behave. This is what they do. This is how the show works. It never does this. It never does this. It always does this. It always does that. A brief. So when I came to it, <laughs> it was like my my thing, because I'm I'm more I'm really interested in character, really, in writing. It's I plot is less interesting to me. Yeah. Um, which is why Silent Steve, who was brilliant to plot, that's why I needed him, because right. Silent Witness is plotty. 
Whereas, yes, it's, you couldn't get more plotty, really, could it's you? It's very, very plotty. But actually, it did have these three quite interesting characters who I thought were slightly underdeveloped. So my stories were very rooted in their characters, particular characters. And I really made it a point, point of doing that. And I think they liked it, actually. But it created another problem, which I, I don't know if I can completely go into, but there's this, you know, there's this challenge with series like that where the characters or the actors who are playing the characters think they are the show. Yeah, sure. Um, and that's always quite a dangerous moment in a series when, when you know, I think there are a number of series that have had this problem. Well, right, yeah. It's been a very successful show. And the act, people love the actors, and then the actors demand X, Y, and Z. Well, yeah. there's a and famously realise that actually that's not no, that's not why people like the show. Yeah. Um, well, the extreme example was the Friends cast, wasn't it? Who, yeah. who all negotiated together and got like a million dollars an episode or something. Yeah. So, I, so just to finish that point, that's that's really, um, you know, for me, well, you know, character is story ultimately. So, if you convey a really a real person, you know, or. The, if if the reader or the viewer is looking at this character going, yeah, this is a real, I, I may not like them or I, um, they may be things, you know, that I don't like about them. You buy it. They're, you I, buy yeah, the person. That yeah. person exists in my imagination at least. So that's where for me a lot of the work needs to go because people, your stories are about people. Simon sent me uh, years ago a little document he'd made of uh, writing advice, which I think is probably something yes. that you made for yourself. Yes. Uh, but we were probably chatting about it on a golf course, and you sent, and I was interested, and you sent it to me. And there was a lovely one. I can't remember who it was. Just the idea. Go that, on, tell me what it well, was. It, it's, it was. it's about it's about don't start your novel with the weather. People will skip forward. Oh, Elmore Leonard. People like people, uh, yeah. and you know people will skip forward yeah, people are won't to skip forward looking for people don't start with the weather unless you're thomas hardy <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. sure yeah you'll get away with it um so i have a oh you, you you've got so many ideas coming out there that i'm super interested in yeah i uh, want to get back to the aftermath thing as well in a minute yeah so um just to clarify quickly it wasn't um my question before wasn't really about what will you do to get a film made it was really to do with the collaboration between you as a writer and a film company and directors, you know, how much compromise is there um, uh, between how much compromise is sort of imposed on you, how much you prepare to accept. And often do you find, oh, actually, that was a really good idea. Yeah. You know, somebody will say, well, we need to do this. Because someone was saying on the on the way up that originally in your, in the aftermath, um, Kieran Knightley's character had, they had, they had, Two children. Another child, yeah. yeah. So I, I'm, the when you you sent me that um, screenplay, it, obviously it was twenty years ago, so I mm. don't remember it. So I read it again before we came mm. up here and watched the film again mm. to remind myself. And I was struck by how different they are. Mm. Now, obviously, that's the first draft of a script. I've mm. not read the book. I'll, I will confess. Okay, I'll confess uh, it too. First draft of the script to the finished yeah. product um, produced film. Yeah. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of things that change. I was, I'm interested in in what that process was how yeah. much of it was you what was was it imposed upon you so the screenplay that you read was very sort of almost like a sort of template for my novel yeah which i had wanted to write and had started to write actually but it got commissioned before i had a book contract to write that book right and then i wrote 50 pages of the book and my agent got me a very big book deal um splendid big enough to park the screenplay and write the book right. and then I came back to the screenplay two years later and they were happy to wait because it had been sold in 25 countries 
Um, and then I was done and I handed it over to a team of script writers. Um, and I guess there are a number of things to say about this, the issues of compromise. It, obviously, when you're a novelist, you are the director, the producer, the writer, the editor. Yeah, costume you know. designer. So the vision is yours to realise, really. You, you know, which is why a lot of novelists shouldn't really be screenwriters, and a lot of them aren't, uh, because they can't compromise that vision. Yeah. Then again, film is doing something else. And, you know, I've, I've had two books made into film, so you learn quickly that this is a different form and it's a different way of telling the story. So the letting it go, you have to let it go. And yeah. I did have to let it go. Um, I was frustrated by some of the choices they made and I wouldn't have made those choices as a filmmaker. Yeah. If I wasn't a novelist, I'd be a director because film is a director's medium. Absolutely. Television is a writer's medium. So they say, yeah. Would you agree with that, having I, done both? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Again, that might be slightly changing because there's lots of migration of talent from film now into into tele television that's where the money's going but there's it? a lot of directors who come from film to television now who are getting a rude awakening mm. it's like yeah, you're not the boss here mate it's weird isn't it because it always used to be that there was a there was a sliding scale when film was at the top yeah and it seems like it's tipped a little bit and some of the big budget telly is is chomping the film but just to, f to go back to the compromise you know I, I when I handed the script over as it were yeah. to others the producer of the of, of the film who's a good friend, he said, Rid, if we shot your film, it would cost about 100 million euros more than oh, the 20 we think we're going to make it for. So that was a commercial. So there's a very practical, and he was probably exaggerating, but my version was quite widescreen and multi-stranded with yeah. lots of different stories. In film, film is very reductive, and you can usually only root for one or two people, mm -hmm. and whereas in the novel, whilst it was a three-focused, or maybe four if you include the sun, the film they took a decision early that it would be essentially through Rachel, the main characters, you know, Kira, as played by Kira. Um, and that, and I get that. I absolutely understand that because you've got two hours and you need to know who you're following. And mm -hmm. very few films have multi strands unless it's a kind of Robert Altman movie or <laughs> whatever. And they're, they're rare. You know, you go to most movies, there's, you're with one person or two. Yeah. But, but I, f I feel like with the, with the colossal boom in superhero movies, you know, they, they've had to find a way, haven't they? Well, yeah. And, and that depends how you feel about Martin yeah. Scorsese's quote recently about uh, yeah. about whether Marvel movies are cinema or not. Yeah. Uh, but those ensemble, I mean, you know, say what you like about those movies. They do a great job at giving... They do. Uh, g g giving giving a, a multiple... Uh, what do you call that? Uh, on, an ensemble, an ensemble cast, a, yeah, a, yeah. a reasonable shot at uh, a story arc. Don't they? So money is usually the biggest issue in terms of compromise, and that drives a number of other decisions. And that's the th those are the things that kind of the artistic-minded people are fighting against sometimes in order to fight the corner of a particular idea yeah. or a, a, an element to a story or something they think is very very important. Um, so. And then there are little compromises within that, which are not necessarily about money. They might be about the actor uh, ah. that you haven't got or that mm. you have got or the shooting schedule or, you know, so many practicalities involved. It's amazing when you see how I mean, a film is like a military operation. Yeah, yeah. Well, you you did you get on set and things? Yeah, I did. I went to Hamburg and to Prague. And I took my dad actually to the to the Hamburg set because it was about the story was about his dad. Yeah. We stayed in a hotel with the actor who was playing his dad, um, technically. Um, 
That's crazy. Jason Clark and uh, and it was a lot of fun. And we had a lot of fun on 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 the set, and uh, they, they were very professional. And you know, I think the process was sort of pleasure pain for me because I think I you know after the success of the book and having this big sort of Hollywood movie, it's like you just want it to be good. And I didn't think it was good. Um, I didn't think it was terrible. It got pretty harshly dealt with by the critics, which I think probably wasn't quite fair, actually. I would agree with I think, that. I think, it's, I think it's better than it was reviewed. Mm. But I, I still think it could have been better. And I think some of those decisions were, a couple of them were sort of around the fundamentals of what you focus on. And a couple of them were just sort of choices about language and tone and what you focus on. I'm fascinated by tone. Yeah. Uh, in in kind of all artistic, uh, yeah. you know, endeavours, like this idea of giving a tone of voice. What's the right tone of voice mm. for this? I do it a lot with illustration work. I'll often make a mood board ahead of a project mm. to try and establish whether to a client, I'm thinking this is the kind of tone of voice, mm. you know, visual tone of voice, if you like. Mm. Um, and that stuff's fascinating, but it's something that it must be so easy in film to get wrong. Um, it is, and that's why the director is so important, because yes. in a way they are the author. Uh, they, they need to become the author and they need to drive it. Now, if they get, you know, that maybe that their tone is not quite the tone you want. I mean, James, who directed The Aftermath, is a very sort of painterly director, quite low I would say low energy. He wasn't good on the dynamic uh, interaction for me. Um, and there was something quite static about it and kind of a bit too beautiful, really. Um, it really, it really it. is a stunner. Yeah, it looks beautiful. Mm. Yeah. And it, for me, you know, the feral kids in, in the, who are a big part of the novel, yeah. um, and they're in that screenplay that you would have read, you know, they play a much more important role. Mm. And, um, you know, some of the rough, it could have been rougher for me. Um, yeah. How about uh, what about the ending? Because it does. I mean, uh, no spoilers. We don't need to spoil it. But they it, did change the ending. They do. Yeah. Actually, I didn't mind what they did about the very ending. They say that the beginning of a beginning of a novel is more important than the end of a novel. Yeah. But the end of a movie is more, more important than the beginning. Of a yeah. Movie. Oh, that's interesting. That and uh, actually, you know what? That's kind of true. It is, is it true? true. Yeah. Because yeah. when I you get that, to the end of a movie, you're walking out of the cinema, and that's what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. And sure. So it, I mean, the, the, in behavioural economics, that's called the peak end rule. Uh, do you know Danny Kahneman and all of those guys? No, but I, I, the peak end rule. I, well, that, there it is. I mean, it's it's you know how you're you right leave. about the about novels though. Yeah, I'm I'm terrible with novels. If it hasn't if it hasn't grabbed me in twenty pages. But even the novels that I love, um, a lot of the novels I love have bad endings. But it doesn't matter. Yeah. But there aren't many films I love that have bad endings. I know you're not very plotty as a writer generally, but. Do you have in mind... So, OK, here's an example. Um, Woodhouse used to have postcards around his room and they would go further up the wall the more he liked them. Well, I've taken them down, but these windows behind me, when I was doing Silent Witness, this is where I started doing it, I would put post-it notes in different colours okay. for different characters up and down and just have, like, three words on them and I'd move them around. And then that was quite a good process for holding the whole thing in your... In your in, yes. in view, as it were. Well, that kind of answers my question. So, was do you sit down and start writing Good for scripts? Do you have you do you, you have a, a sort of a chapter plan, if you like? You've got an overview before you sit down and put. You know, to there keyboard. are different. There are so many different routes to the creation creation of things. One might be a very systematic, you know, 
what happens, what happens, what happens. Yeah. One might be one image. You know, with the aftermath, um, again, they didn't use this in the film, which is a shame because it's so cinematic. There was a scene in it uh, where Lewis, who was my grandfather, and this was a true bit of the story, he had an orange uh, in his pocket and he met some feral kids who stopped his car. He got out and these kids came out and they'd yes, not, they'd not seen an orange and the kid took it and he bit into the orange. He didn't even know that you had to He had to, to show him it. how to peel it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I thought that's an amazing image, mm. you know, on lots of levels. and um, Especially the, the way they shot it where it's all bleached out and if you've yes. got a big orange thing, that would, yeah. that would have been So that nice. might be the central image around which you build that sort of setup. And that um, gives you a tone of voice though, doesn't it? That yeah. really lends itself to, yeah. you know, like you say, that image is so sort of evocative. Yeah. You, you almost feel like you could show the whole cast that and say, this is what we're trying to do. Yeah, of. you could. And, and you That's know, what you'd have done. Well, <laughs> I, you know, in meetings I kept bringing it up, actually, interestingly, yeah. but it, it other things are happening. You know, it, again, there are so many moving parts to a film and some of those moving parts are executive producers mm. who change, um, you know, come in and out of meetings and some, sometimes it's a new one. Or you have a new distributor. It was going to be Canal Palu. Um, Studio Canal, and then it became Fox, um, Searchlight, who were great. But, you know... You've got so, a whole new raft of people, presumably. Yeah, so, th- so you know, there are different... That's why, you know, a, a producer uh, who's a good... You know, I mean, Jack actually was a good midwife for this project. He He had a vision of what it should be about. And he and I sort of agreed about that. But there was a moment where he said, you're not going to like what we're doing right. now, Rid. Um and he was kind of right, hmm. but I was sort of hoping that it, it, it sounds it, like you. I mean, you didn't you didn't hate it, but you it wasn't the way you'd have done it. So the, no, but I felt the same about Talias and Jones. Maybe, yeah. You know the film that they did. I guess about. It's, it's what they say about you've got to let go. I guess that is what they mean, though. Yeah. In that is it, it can't be all you all the way. I remember watching the um, Atonement in in a, a early screening of Atonement, sitting behind Ian McEwan, right, in Richmond, and. Um, watching him. I watched him more than I watched the film. Was he squirming? I was just so curious to see what he thought of that yeah, film. Yeah, and yeah. I didn't like that film. The beginning's very good. Like his book. Yes. Um, he's very good at beginnings. Books, interestingly. He's, he's less good at endings, in my view. But um, I was just sort of curious as to how he was responding. And I mean, he probably didn't care because the book went on to sell gazillions. Yeah. And I think the film probably helped him. But, you know, the, there is a sort of... You, you just sort of have to grow up, really, as a writer, and just yeah. say, this is a different form. Or and don't do it. Do you remember? Do you know Alan Moore? Yes. Uh, so, uh, f- famously with The Watchmen. Yeah. Uh, he said, this isn't yeah. This isn't a film. Yeah. It isn't a TV series. It's a comic. Yeah. I wrote it as a comic. Yeah. Stop trying to make it something it's not. Yeah. And Look how that's gone, though. It's, it's now both, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's it's they've very, just it's done a, a television series. Well, it's not yeah, a very, and it was it's a film, not a very good film i guess mm. the, i guess the point is he wasn't involved in it at but all. but yes that that was my point yeah. if you don't like it you know he, i mean he opted out he said I'm, I'm not having anything to do with this yeah. you know not 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 on not in my name kind of thing yeah if you, if you know if you have to do it then crack on but i don't want anything to do with this uh so i suppose if you can't handle the idea of compromise and you can't handle the idea of lots of creative input from yeah executive producers co-writers script you don't know then, script writer. Then, then don't do you it you have to have a very thick skin I mean, in a sense, it's been it's been helpful being a scriptwriter, being a novelist, because it gives you a slightly thicker skin. I've never been heavily ever edited as a novelist. Um, the aftermath was the most heavily edited, 
but only in a very particular, it was 25,000 words longer than it actually came out. Right. And the, the cuts were, they weren't that what was there was bad. It was just, if you cut them, it will make these bits better. And it was quite a big moment where I had to decide. And I, I could have saw it straight away. And the reason I saw it straight away was because of my film script hat. Mm. I could see that it was right. So I didn't have, I wasn't precious about it. I mean, as it is, my agent, I think my my wife, Nicola, both felt they should have left them in. It would have been fine because um, it's a novel and people will like that material. Yeah. Um, but they were being quite... Can you do a writer's cut? <laughs> a writer's cut, yeah. I, funny enough, I did think about that the other yeah. day. I was thinking, you know, I've got these 25,000 words and the book's done well what enough massive that appendix. people might, you know... Might there might be you know enough of a readership for that? Yeah, I bet there would be. Uh, the director's cut, yeah. yeah. I bet there would be because there's enough you know enough people who who bought it and loved it who would want to. Here's the bits we cut out, which yeah, is the yeah. same thought, isn't it? As the sort of deleted scenes. And that is another cracking comment. These boys are at the top of their game. I loved what you said earlier about uh, how how all novelists or aspiring novelists should be made to write a script. Mm. How did you learn to write a script? Well, I, I did it by doing it and obviously looking at some scripts just in terms of te- how they're laid out. And so then you, I, didn't, you didn't study for that? I didn't study for that. But I didn't study for my writing, really, uh, mm. other than reading a lot. And um, So you're self-taught? Scribbling from an early age, yeah. I mean, I've always liked stories and I've always been good at English and... Um, I can write fairly naturally. Um, it doesn't. It's not hard. It doesn't you know? Uh, I mean, it, obviously, writing is hard. Uh, writing something interesting is hard. Um, but yeah, I'm self-taught really. Uh, I. You know, it's quite. A, it's an interesting form of script because it's set. It's essentially, it's a set of instructions for other people. Yes. Is, a, is it Paul Schrader, the uh, taxi driver? Guy's got a lovely quote about screenplays. Screenplays are not works of art. They are mm. invitations for others to collaborate on a work of art. Yeah. And, 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 well, they are, I mean, I think the instructions thing is quite helpful because it's like, you know, it's instructions for actors, instructions for sound, instructions for lighting, yeah. instructions for obviously director. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it, it needs to read as though there's a story and it can be, I mean, some, some scripts are fun to read. Some mm. scripts for really good movies are actually not that great. Yeah. Interestingly, I mean, I you know I've got I've got a bunch of screenplays over there, you know, the ones that are published by Faber, and there's an art to reading a script. Yes, that is not quite the same as reading a book. You've got you know the guys who make films have got to be really good at reading scripts, and they're reading all sorts of things. They're reading a line. They're going, "That's ten thousand mm. dollars," or "That's a million dollars." I'm sure you're reading. Train hits building is a one line yeah. that costs a million, you know, ten million dollars. <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. I guess um, you read it quite differently as a production designer than you would as an actor. It, well, of yeah, course. Yeah. And whereas the actors are going, "How good does this make me? How, how funny <laughs> yeah, am I?" Sure. You know, uh, or I can't say that. Yeah, so yeah. all these different interpretations of the same script. Yeah. So you know, notes. You get notes. You yeah. get notes from everybody because everyone has a view. Yeah, that's why you, you see that sounds like hard work. Back to the thick skin. You well, know. that's back to advertising, isn't it? Like the, one of the things that really struck me about advertising is that the and the difference it is between different kinds of writing mm. is that you you write something quite short and you'll get thirty people with an opinion on it. Yeah. Whereas if you're 
writing more long form things like uh, whether it's novels or, or just longer form, like say if it's a website even mm. there's the more words there are it seems the, the less you'll get in terms of specific feedback mm. but i guess scripts are like that aren't they because it's condensed there's not that many words in it but you've got an awful lot of people who've got a an opinion on it and I've also got a, a say in whether or not it goes forward. Yeah, and you have to be, yeah, who's the power in the room, you mm. know, or where's the money in the room? You know, sometimes, you, sometimes you'll get a note from an executive producer and you're like, what the hell was that? You know, that was nothing to do with anything. Yeah. But then you realise that person's like paying for half of He's it. He's got oh, right. the checkbook. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, Steve Jobs used to have this, uh, I read a lovely book about Pixar. They were sort of, um, you know, they were overlapped with Steve Jobs' uh, and they said Steve Jobs would just go into a room and pick a fight, mm. just say something outrageous, mm. just to establish who he had in the room. Yeah. If anyone stood up to him. Yeah. Okay. He was happy. Yeah. Well, kind of, but okay. I've yeah. got you. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. 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 Uh, you know. So okay, if you're going to stand up to one, I know, I know, I've got to, I've got to shout you down, but the rest of these guys. Yes, uh, and know, that's an interesting thing there, which is sticking. How do you stick to your guns? You know, when you go, when you write. A script particularly you know you you go for your meetings and there are certain things you feel you know you're killing your darlings issues um but sometimes it's like it's it's interesting how often you know in a first draft someone once said to me your first draft of your screenplay you i guarantee the first 15 pages of your script won't exist you know because you always start too early yeah yeah, yeah. Story you, can, often, you got coming late come in in media res you know yeah and um so there are certain things that you you forget, even though you're doing it a lot. When you, you go, oh, yeah, of course, I'm starting, it's too late, or that's a bit on the nose, or show, don't tell, or these little kind of rules, that are, some of which are, you know, internalised, um, and most many of which are true, um, and to be obeyed or to be What are the ones that to. are most precious to you? Are they... Well, they're slightly different for the different forms, I guess. Um, I, I try with 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 everything. I really try and picture it in my mind, you know. But it doesn't mean I have to picture it in order to write it down. This is back to the. This is the woo woo. This is the woo woo bit about <laughs> writing that I don't completely understand. Okay, brilliant. Which is, I could think of a store of something's going to happen in a scene and then I could write it but it was only in the writing down that something else happens and I discover the thing that I really have to write rather than the thing I thought I had to write before I started to write the thing I've just thought of if that makes sense yes it does so, make perfect sense. so and I don't really understand what happens there but there's absolutely something physical involved whether it's fingers on a pen and there's a difference between keyboards and planting mm. pens which I'll come on to but uh, there's a, you know, there's something happens in the moment of putting it down there, and that's again something I keep forgetting until I'm doing it. So back to novel writing, especially as novel writing, you know, there's a sort of. I mean, a novel is a big undertaking. I mean, Murakami wrote, writes a book about running, which is really about. I love that book. Which is really a book about writing. Mm. Um, and he says, you know, writing a novel is like writing a marathon. You've got to be in shape. It's one foot after another. You can't go too fast, you know. And sentence by sentence by sentence by sentence by sentence, you know. The patience, it's patience, you know. It's not a sprint. I have a, I wrote actually, I love that book. I yeah, had yeah. a spell where I was a runner um, and I was just uh, five years of, of running uh, and I went from hating it 
to really loving it yes. to having terrible knees and having to give it up. Yeah. But in that time, I read so many. I read all of the running books that yeah, I possibly yeah, yeah. could. And one of them was the Murakami one, mostly because I just love Murakami. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but Murakami writing about running was like, yay. Yeah, yeah. It's like the Holy Grail. But I loved his thing. Uh, I wrote a little note here. Uh, I just wrote Murakami slash Chandler. Hmm. Uh, and in his book, he talks about um, the sort of heavy lifting of writing, mm. uh, how he follows the Raymond Chandler approach just to get up uh, get up discipline yeah sat down or goes for his run yeah uh, sits himself down between eight and one even if he's not writing a book yeah even if he's going through a spell where words are hard to come by yeah he sits there yeah uh, and that's well this is the turning up thing and the routine you know took me a while to work out the routine and uh, to get over kind of guilt as well because some people can write for seven hours or eight hours some write for two hours and there is no rule about who, how long it should be. It's really down to you. Some people write better at night. Some people write better in the day. Some people have to write at, at night because they can't write in the day. Or, you know, there are sort of have-tos and then there are your sort of optimums. And I just took a view that, you know, I'm, I have a family. My wife's a teacher. She's home by four. I'm at home. I'm going to start early. I, I think I'm a morning guy, but I'm only a morning guy because I've made myself a morning guy. And I write essentially from sort of... You know, I'm up at seven, porridge at seven fifteen, cup of tea, ablutions. Most people have left the house. I walk to work because I don't walk to work, so I walk around the block. Do you? Yeah, rather than go straight to my desk, get some oxygen. There. I used to try doing that. I was, I was so ill-disciplined. I never pick up a coffee. It. Pick up a coffee from Rudy's. I'm usually at my desk about eight thirty. I the phone has been a disaster, mm. and the internet has been smart pretty bad. Absolute nightmare. It's an absolute disaster. Yeah. And actually, it's only when I'm really, you know, I've got a commission to write X that I can put the phone upstairs. But I'm, at the moment, I'm in a sort of pushing lots of things out there. The phone's here, you know, and it's a nightmare. But essentially, if I can get from sort of nine till one without too much interruption, that that's four hours is about right. Anything else is a bonus. Swim at lunchtime, walk, whatever. In the afternoon, bit of admin. If I'm on a deadline and I or I'm under pressure, then I, you know I'll write in the afternoons and sometimes, rarely, I'll write in the evenings. Right. Um, but it, it, routine is so important, you know. In a way, you know, a writer's life sounds kind of glamorous, but really, most writers are just sort of strenuously trying to carve out a dull existence. Mm. Uh, keep they're trying to keep not they're trying to keep everything kind of quite safe and boring. Yeah. Uh, for the craziness, you know, to, to carry on in your head. Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask you about procrastination? Yes. I'm a dreadful... No. can we do it tomorrow? <laughs> nice. I'm a dreadful procrastinator. It's a symbol over there. Yeah. There is. You can actually... Yay! Um, do you... You just described your routine. Do you always stick to it, or are you bad at um, finding other things to do instead of doing it? Um, I've always thought I'm quite disciplined, mm. and then recently I've been castigating myself for not being disciplined enough. Um, I, if I can keep the phone out of the room, uh, that, that's a huge, that's huge. I mean, I've probably dealt with 90% of my distraction. Yeah. I mean, obviously checking your emails, because I can do that on my computer. Do you turn it off? Do you turn the Wi-Fi off? Well, my last novel, The, the Killing of Butterfly Joe, I wrote longhand and then I put it on a computer. And that was really interesting for a number of reasons. One, writing longhand was interesting. Yeah. Because I think you use almost a slightly different bit of your brain. I bet you do, actually. I've done it for I so I really long. enjoyed it. 
and you don't edit as you go. Get it down, edit later. So that's good. What getting the slab of putty out yeah. that you then the clay out, getting the slab of clay to mould. You know, for that it was really good. Mm. Uh, so I would re- recommend longhand writing. Then did you get it? The other up advantage of that else is that I didn't have a computer in the room. Yes. So did I you... couldn't check my emails or the cricket score. Yeah. Or oh, the cricket. The rugby score. The cricket is troublesome, isn't it? Test matches are Test my, matches, my absolute kryptonite. If there's well, I've managed to get the little box on BBC uh, where the t- cricket score is just down. It used to be CFAX, which was the yes. best way to watch cricket. By a long way. Now you have the box on the bottom of your screen. So exciting watching cricket on CFAX. <laughs> yeah, Come on. Yeah. Especially when Michael Atherton was batting. <laughs> He'd be staring at the score and it wouldn't change for about 45 minutes. And then there would be like a He was our generation's three. boycott, wasn't he? I he suppose. was, yeah. He was. So um, I digress, but you, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I'm an extrovert doing an introvert's job. So I, I, I. That's a lovely phrase. I like, my wife is in probably an introvert doing an extrovert's job. She's mm. a teacher. So we have very different days and we have very different kind of needs, I guess. You know, I want to see my friends and do stuff at the end of the day. And and I do. And I do a fair bit of organising sometimes during the day around that. Um, um, I mean, you don't... I don't think to be a writer you have to be an introvert. I, and I don't think you have to be difficult and sort of hermit-like. Those things can be an advantage. But being a misanthrope can be a huge disadvantage because it means you don't understand people. And well, you don't, yeah can't write about and it seems to me from the work of yours that i've read you come off like a real people person listening to some of your um your thoughts for the day Mm. uh so the other day parasite won best picture Mm. and two things came out of that interview with the director Mm. that made me that prompted me to think of of you Mm. uh the first one was that the uh, director, Bong Joon-ho, uh, in his speech said uh, that the personal is the most creative mm. and he accredited it to Martin Scorsese. Mm. Um, and it struck me, listening to some of your thoughts of the day, a lot of them are so personal. Mm. Uh, they really are about you. And if they're not mm. about you, um, they're mm. about real people. Mm. Um, and then the same director had a tweet later in the day uh, or somebody tweeted about him from an interview. Uh, you know, what does his creative life look like? Mm. And he said, oh, I like a simple lifestyle. Drink coffee, write, and try not to meet a lot of people. Mm. And I thought those were kind of... You must be a real people person to be able to write the way you do. Mm. But at the same time, writing, to me, to a non-writer, mm. feels like such a... I suppose the cliche of the the writer is a I hermit. Said, yeah. Um, well, I do have the isolation because I am here on my own most days for large periods of time. And I forget that until I meet somebody. And I go, oh, yeah, people. But do you <laughs> need to be out to meet people? Just being around people, uh, you know, um, does it bring ideas? Does it give you ideas for character, for personality traits? Does it remind you that, oh, actually, people aren't always the same? People are really nuanced and strange. I think, I mean, I'm. I came to writing in my 20s and I, my, the reason partly I started writing was because I was ill. I had uh, an illness for a couple of years and that was quite significant for a couple of reasons. One, um, I was very lonely with it and I had to learn to enjoy my own company. And I read a lot and then I started to write and I also came to faith at that time. And so a combination of things happened to me that were 
I guess, quite internal and to do with my thought life, if you like, and my, uh, you know, internal conversation. And whilst I can yabba yabba for, you know, with the best of them, um, it was really good for me and, and probably helped me become a writer because um, I learned to really think and to to look to look and you know to observe and and to to look at things um in terms of people i mean whenever i go wherever we go away i mean we went to mexico recently for for the hay festival and we traveled as well and i and whenever i go away i go oh my god this is so good it's so good there's something about travel which is incredibly good the enemy you. of narrow-mindedness they call it don't they? yeah and it, and it's really good to get out of the routine if you've got a routine and it's really good to get some perspective and and it can really fire up some thoughts and ideas so the people on my in my street of course can be there's a there's a universe in my street you know uh, uh, probably enough material to go forever um i think interaction is good iron sharpens iron and people you know i think i don't just hang around with literary types i mean i'm married to an english teacher i know plenty of writers who are very some of whom are good friends and, you know, I mix with very creative people through film and, and you know, even Thought for the Day as well, you know. Um, and I've, I've met some amazing people through the writing. Um, but I live in Sheen with all kinds of mums and dads who do diff- different jobs. I mean, there are a lot of media people here, but, you know, different different kinds of people, you know, different, you know, and I I really like that. It's been and you play, you play a, bit of, a bit of football? Play a little bit of football. Presumably, that's not all writers. <laughs> no, it's 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 uh, well, it's a couple of writers. There's a lawyer. There's a brain surgeon. There's a couple of plumbers. There's a comedian. There's um, a hairdresser. There's a driver. There's a you know yeah, it's a mix. I love that. The, yeah. the, one of the things I love the most about moving out of uh, well, I miss London a lot. But when we moved to Salisbury and Simon and I met playing cricket. One of the most fun things about playing village cricket in the New Forest, uh, as somebody who come from London, was playing in a team with a vicar, yeah. uh, um, uh, a postman, uh, a guy who ran the fishmongers, yeah. uh, two guys who literally just come from the forest that morning, chopping down trees. Yeah, lots of farmers. Loads of farmers. And, and you know, f- for me, as somebody who'd been a Londoner, hanging out with a load of, you know, like-minded London media types, it was just amazing. And... Uh, I mean, it's I, interesting, I you know, I, I agree. I think, I think, I think for life, that's good. I, whether it's good for writing, I, I, who, yeah. who, who will know? I don't, I don't know the answer. I, I only have to, you know, I have to be true to, to who I am. You know, some writers really will just hang around with other writers. Um, and I mean, sometimes I read certain writers and I, I get the feeling that that's what they do. Um, and their preoccupations are writerly, um, and their reference points are literary. Um, and that's fine, and they, they're, there's plenty of brilliant writing that, that comes out of that, but the ability to convey that and to picture it and com- communicate that in an interesting way to other people probably has nothing to do with whether you're an introvert or an extrovert or whether you've got lots of friends or no friends mm. or... It, it probably has a little bit to do with your routine and, you know, because you've got to do, you've got to get it out, you've got to do it. But um, it, it, there are so, there's no one way to be a writer. You know, that's the interesting thing about, about it. You know, it's not, there is a cliched idea of what a writer is, but my, from the writers I've met and known, you know, there's not really, they're quite different. 
So there we go. That was our first chat, first half, if you like. Part one of a two-part. Yes. If you like that, try the next one. Yes, quite. So, and if it feels like it didn't really finish, like, you know, it's a bit kind of like Empire Strikes Back. Hasn't really yeah. got an end. <laughs> because there's another part to come. Yeah, exactly. Which uh, climaxes in the, the tasting of some uh, fancy chocolates um, and discussions about philosophy and things. <laughs> and things. Yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so if you're interested in this, the, the more the softer stuff, the more philosophy, religion, a bit of kind of, I don't know, what would you say, views on the approach to life? Yes, I would say that all of those things. Uh, then, um, yeah, then stick around for part two, uh, which is um, more of the same sort of uh, creativity chats, um, but probably with a, just with a hint of, uh, hint of reflection and philosophy thrown in. Oh, reflection's the word I was looking for, thank you. Yeah. Well done. Thank you. Crack on. Crack on.